Hello, my name is Martina Majewska and I am assisting with the organization of the exhibition titled Visualizing Forced Migration at the University of St Andrews and Kakaldi Galleries. Over the next few months, we are releasing a series of podcast episodes connected to a project we are running on the long shadow of war. One of the many ripple effects of conflict is forced displacement. The Visualizing War project at the University of St Andrews has teamed up with an artist, Diana Forster, to explore different ways of visualizing the shocking rupture and loss that people experience when they are forced to leave their homes due to war and the long journeys that they have to make to find a new place to call home. Diana's artwork focuses on the stories of Polish families who were forcibly displaced from both Poland and Ukraine to Soviet Russia during World War II. Um, and we have been doing some research to complement her exhibition, looking into other families' experiences, particularly families whose long journey of migration brought them to Fife, where the University of St Andrews is based. My guest today is Matt Farenholtz. Matt grew up in St Andrews in a Polish family who settled in Fife following the Second World War. While Matt currently lives in Warsaw, he still recalls his childhood in Scotland, uh, where he was in fact surrounded by Poles um, and other individuals from all walks of life um, and many different countries. Um, so his house, uh, as he says, was an open one. Parents would welcome everyone who needed a place to stay. So today we have the pleasure of hearing Matt's memories and reflections. Thank you very much for joining us, Matt. No problem. It's a pleasure. Great. Let's begin. I, I guess it's only appropriate to start from the very beginning. Could you tell me about your family's origins? Where did your parents uh, grow up and how did they end up in Scotland? Okay. My mother was born in Lvov, which is now Ukraine, and uh, before the war was, was Polish. My father came from a very small village outside the roof called Busk. And in fact, that's what he named our house in Scotland. It was called the Busk. It had that painted on the door. And my father came to Scotland during the war. He was in General Magic's First Armoured Division and was in the army in the UK during the war and was in Normandy in France uh, at the Battle of Falaise and basically I was brought up in Scotland amongst a whole host of people that he had been in the army with and uh, they'd all served in uh, either with General Maciek or with General Sosobowski who was the parachute, uh, the head of the Polish parachute brigade. My mother actually spent the whole of the war in Lwów and came to Scotland in the 50s when they married. So both of my parents were Poles and we spoke Polish at home. I was brought up in a kind of Polish culture at home, surrounded with all these people. And then outside of the home environment, I was just like any other Scottish kid. So it was almost like living two lives. One was the kind of Polish life at home, which my parents really adhered to, you know, Polish cuisine. We learned Polish. Uh, we were brought up speaking Polish and English. I have two brothers, and all of us speak more or less fluent Polish. So did your father speak of the war at home, of his experience? Did he 
recurrent story? My, my parents didn't really speak that much about it. And in fact, it is kind of one of my regrets that after my parents died in the mid-90s, within like a few weeks of each other, that there were so many things I didn't really know about their background. There was a few stories I was told, but it wasn't like a sort of continual discussion with my parents about the war. And I remember being at one point really put off asking my father much because as an eight or nine-year-old, the question that interested me most then was whether he'd killed anyone during the war. And I remember him just standing up and walking out of the room. And it kind of put me off asking too much afterwards. I mean, he didn't respond to this question. He just got up and walked out. I was quite taken aback with because my father was a very gregarious, funny, happy-go-lucky guy who was always playing jokes and uh, up to mischief, like a grown-up child sort of person. But I remember feeling really angry at myself that I'd asked him that because even at the age when I was, you know, eight or nine, I just felt so bad for having asked him that question. You know, later, a few things came up. And I think it's quite obvious that, like, both of my parents had pretty hardcore experiences because of the war and what had happened to them. Kind of look at my father and think, well, he's just my dad and we're living in, you know, a, a nice home and a nice community and everything's nice. And then some of the things that I, I learned from him, uh, I just thought I couldn't associate him with the things that he had gone through. His story was really that prior to the war, he was a Polish border guard on what was the one point, a Hungarian-Polish part of the border, which was somewhere in the Carpathian Mountains. And when the war started, the Hungarian army crossed that part of the border and arrested all the Polish military guys and uh, border guards and handed them over to the Germans, like, straight away. And my father ended up in a prisoner of war camp in the north of Germany, where they were kind of forced to work in the agricultural sector. So they were working on farms and things, but were also being held captive in, like, a, a camp. I mean, I think, it, you know, when you, when you talk about camps and that during the war, I think this as a kind of work camp... I don't think they were treated like terribly or anything, but they were basically slave labor. They were being used as kind of forced labor. And he and the group of other guys escaped from the camp. This was one of the stories I remember clearly him telling me, and it was a really complicated series of events. And uh, one of the guys that was working in the office in the camp stole ink and they drank the ink, which the Germans got in a big panic because they thought there was some kind of uh, illness going around because they all got pretty sick. They were taken to like a medical department and it showed up in the tests that they had something in their guts. It was showing, the ink was showing up and they were transported to a hospital. My father told me that they escaped from the train so they basically escaped in Germany and then walked across the whole of Germany and um, through Spain, through Gibraltar, and ended up coming to the UK. So they arrived on a fishing boat from, I think it was Portugal, 
and were immediately arrested when arriving in the UK because they had arrived in a very strange manner. So it was kind of like, are they spies? Who are they? They spent six or eight weeks in a military prison in the UK until it was proven that they're not German agents or whatever, and then immediately sent for training to join the Polish army in the UK. I think it was in Herefordshire, and then they were transferred to Scotland to train with General Magic's First Armoured Division, which ended up then with them going to Normandy and to Falaise, where my father was actually uh, very badly wounded, and then he spent the rest of the war in a military hospital in Britain. He told me that actually one of the best things that could have happened to him was being wounded at Falaise, because <laughs> he thought if he hadn't been wounded, he'd probably be dead. That's an amazing story of survival, but also it must have been a harrowing journey, especially the, the escape through Germany at that time. I want to bring it back to Scotland. Do you know how your mother arrived, how they met your parents? They met in a kind of strange way, because I think that's also not a very common story, I don't think, because... Um, Many of my father's army colleagues in Scotland met Scottish women, married them, settled down. My, my father had this thing in his head that he really, really wanted to marry a Polish woman. I think he saw it as a kind of continuation of his Polishness, so to speak. And one of his relatives after the war said, oh, Stanley, my father was uh, Stanisław, which is Stanley. We know this wonderful woman, she'd be perfect for you. And she's also just inherited um, a property in New York. Because my mother had inherited property, she was allowed to leave Poland in, in the 50s. But she never went to New York. She stopped off in Scotland to meet my father. And her New York inheritance kind of went out the window. And she stayed in St. Andrews and married my dad. And that was her story. So she gave up. Apparently a lovely house in New York to stay in St. Andrews. <laughs> well, that's very romantic, isn't it? That she mm -hmm. gave it up for a completely new place. I believe it was her first time in Scotland and she stayed. Yeah, she. I don't think she'd ever uh, left Lvoff before that. I think she'd. Uh, it was the first time she'd gone anywhere, really, was this trip, which was supposed to be to America and then was cut short in Scotland. I can imagine the advantages of, of living in Scotland. Can you tell us more about your home in Scotland, what you remember about your house, how your parents managed to settle in in this new environment, um, speaking, I presume, Polish? How did they learn English and, and how did they find their home mm. in St Andrews? I think we were actually very lucky because my, my father was like over-the-top character He was always like really interested in people and very socially orientated. And, uh, and one of the first things he did when he was in Scotland was to join uh, the Amateur Operatic Society. But I do have photos of him in uh, Gilbert and Sullivan operettas. And, and there he met a bank manager from St. Andrews. They became quite friendly. And the bank manager managed to arrange a loan for my father to buy a house. And I think this was all thanks to the fact that he joined the little community and the operatic society. So he was lent 3,000 pounds with which they 
it'd be completely unheard of now, but £3,000 bought a big house on North Street, which is where I was brought up. I spent my whole childhood in the house in North Street. So we had quite a good home environment, and I think they settled in quite well. My father also, he worked for a while in uh, the Russex Hotel in the kitchen, where I remember him telling me the initial learning English from uh, the kitchen staff basically comprised of the first lessons were learning uh, things like the F word and uh, really bad things. Um, And then he worked for a while at the um, sugar beet factory outside Cooper. His father had been a blacksmith and a saddler before the war. My father was actually from a very poor family in Busk. I think a lot of places in the country in Poland prior to the war kind of existed in what you could call like a feudal system because they basically had a landowner who was usually like a baron or a count. And then people lived on on his lands in exchange for giving him a percentage of the crop. My grandfather, who I never met, he was a blacksmith for the landowner. So my dad knew about being a saddler, being a blacksmith. He ended up as a cobbler in St Andrews on North Castle Street with another Polish uh, guy. The two of them worked uh, there. And then he set up his own like leather goods and leather repair shop on South Street. And that's what he did until he retired. He had this little shop, which I think was uh, a very well-known shop in St. Andrews because it was really kind of like old school. He got to know lots of people like the university staff, professors and so on who would come to him to repair their leather briefcase that was given to them by their mother when they first went to university and stuff. So he was kind of like looking after items that were really important to these people, which is also like another thing that I think is an old world way of functioning. You know, he would repair Professor somebody's brogues that he had got when he was 18 or something. And Stanley would have to repair the shoes. You know, people tended not to throw things away then. They actually, like, just wanted these things kept. And I remember, like, when my father did finally retire and close the shop, I was really moved by the number of letters he got from uh, local characters and uh, professors from St Andrews University saying how much they're going to miss the shop and and just going in to chat with my father and so on. Because it was also, his shop was also like a kind of little community club. Quite often in the back of the shop, he'd be sitting in in his workshop at the back with four or five other Polish guys chatting and uh, drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes. And uh, I mean, I think he always liked the fact of being like surrounded with people and also the people, the Polish community, because he knew almost everyone. They had like something that linked them all together. And that was that experience of basically the war and having lost their homeland. And it was something that actually drew them all together as a a kind of community. It was the same in our home, where it was just an endless stream of these people coming and going nonstop. I never remember my mum locking the front door because it was always open in case somebody wanted to come in for a chat or a coffee. And it was just ongoing and it was the most amazing kind of childhood to be amongst uh, these people who were also incredibly funny um 
and just seemed to think they were like indestructible or something because they'd gone through something that, that was like so traumatic. I think a lot of them had this thing in their heads that like things just can't get any worse. So let's enjoy it. Absolutely amazing childhood I had with these people. So this story of both your father's workshop and, and, and your home, it seems like your parents were this community binding family, you know, helping the community kind of stick together. So can you talk more about this idea of an open home, some of the people that you met because they would come to your house, anything that you remember most vividly about it? I mean, there's a few people that really, for me, when I was a kid, that really stood out. I mean, my absolute favourite person when I was a kid had been a paratrooper during the war. And he used to come to our house every Friday. And he lived outside St Andrews. He had a plot of land and he was more or less like self-sufficient. And he would come into town every Friday by about 1 p.m., he'd be really drunk because he would have his Friday kind of like his day off and it's the day he'd come into town. And then he would come to our house. And I just remember uh, when he would come to the house, we would hear the front door opening. And first of all, his uh, white Alsatian dog would come in and my mum would just go, oh no, he's here. But he was really funny and really over the top. And I remember him kind of like showing us how to fight and what you have to learn is how to look after yourself. I mean, he was a really like hard man, but a really nice guy who was just kind of, for kids, it was like having, I don't know, someone like Batman visiting you at home or something. To us, he was like a hero. And uh, we used to love when he'd come round. And uh, I remember quite often he'd be like fighting with my older brother, sort of teaching him how to fight, which usually involved my brother lying on the carpet going, I didn't stop, stop, please stop. And, and my mum going, stop it, stop it. But it was always funny. And I think for kids, it was exciting. And I remember being quite excited by the, like thinking, yeah, this guy is really like the real thing because he had lots of homemade tattoos and stuff. He looked a bit like Popeye, really. He was quite old already, but you just knew, even though he was quite old, he could probably really take care of himself <laughs> if, if something was to happen. These people were, even though they were kind of like bound together with this one massive story of loss and war, they were quite different and they had different characteristics like... There was like a barber in St. Andrews who was one of my dad's greatest friends. And I think everyone in St. Andrews probably remember him. Michael Zamora, who had the barber shop near the West Port for years and years. The shop itself was also like a little Polish club. You know, I'd, I'd go there to get my hair cut and there'd always be four or five Polish guys in there arguing. And, and the barber shop would just be like, a fog of cigarette smoke while they're arguing about something. I mean, it's one place I really wish I'd kind of photographically documented when I got older because it was just the most incredible old barber shop that smelt of 1950s hairdressers' perfumes. And it was great. And I remember, like, I used to go in there and there was a long bench behind the barber's chair where all the guys would sit and argue. And I would go in and it was always 
I always got my hair cut for free because my dad was his best mate sort of thing. So it was always, I, I don't ever remember. I remember like when I got a bit older, I started feeling really guilty that he would just refuse money. But I remember when I was really small, he had like a wooden uh, plank that he had to put across the arms of the barber chair so that I could sit high enough for him to actually cut my hair. <laughs> and then he would cut my hair, uh, usually with a cigarette, hanging from his lip so I was constantly getting cigarette smoke blown on me and he'd be arguing with the guys behind and at the same time cutting my hair incidentally I also remember he would always say what do you want today and he always said the same thing two options skinhead or kojak it was the only two haircuts he could do which were obviously like the same thing <laughs> skinhead or kojak Kojak being an incredibly popular sort of 1970s TV detective show. And he was just another like amazing guy. Because I remember when I got a bit older, he told me a story of when he was in the army with my dad and they were in Normandy. And he actually cut General Eisenhower's hair on the beaches of Normandy. And I was just, I remember thinking, wow, this guy like cut Eisenhower's hair and now he's giving me like a Kojak haircut. It's just fantastic. Kind of little things like that. Were kind of like just really nice to know. And, you know, he was another guy that would spend hours in our house. And he was also incredibly funny, really nice guy. And then there was other people like my godfather, who was offered the professorship at the university because he was an astronomer, but he turned down the professorship because he didn't want the responsibility. And, and he was just the opposite, stereotype, classic academic. So you'd have these guys who were, I don't know, like some kind of uh, happy-go-lucky, funny, crazy people. And then you would have this gentleman professor and they'd all sit together and talk. It was almost like having a community where it was people from all kinds of backgrounds, but with that one link that they had, they'd all kind of met and done something together that they'd survived. And then they carried on being uh, really close, even though they were very different people. And I, I also found that really interesting. I like the concept of, for example, the British pub. I live in Warsaw now. It's one thing I really miss. Because if you go to a pub in Scotland, uh, all kinds of people are there. Whereas I think there's this kind of thing here where there's pubs for certain types of people. So there's student pubs or there's pubs for rich people. So it's a bit like how that community functioned. That they were basically like a British pub. They were all from different backgrounds, and but they all got on great. But that environment actually taught me a lot about that you basically have to accept everyone because you never know what's made them who they are or what life has thrown at them to make them who they are. So you kind of have to give people the benefit of the doubt and just be nice to them or at least try to tolerate them. That's one of the big lessons that my parents taught me. And I think their wartime experiences I mean, I haven't said much about my mother, but, you know, my mother having spent the whole of the war in Lvov, and she told me a couple of things that couldn't believe. It was kind of sporadically, she would sort of, for some reason, if we were talking about something, a story would come out. So there is a lot of stuff that I, I kind of don't really know. So I, I think that also gave them that vision, but that kind of, you just have to accept people because otherwise you live in your own kind of uh, bubble. Because they weren't just... Uh, really nice and well-known in the Polish community. I mean, they had masses of 
friends in Scotland. And because our house was quite big, we had a, the top floor of the house where we always had people living there. And, and usually they were like students who were uh, looking for accommodation or, or people that worked in local hotels. And it didn't matter who these people were. We had such a kind of mix of people. My parents were like, well, they're people and they need somewhere to stay. We had quite a lot of people from around the world as well, because I think in the early days in St. Andrews, it was, you know, if somebody came from India or Pakistan or something, I think it's not like now, where they, these were people who, who had already travelled a bit and uh, knew the world. I remember we, we had a guy who carried on being like a really close family friend, and he'd come from Mauritius, and he'd never... I think he was about 18 and he was going into first year at the university and he was looking for somewhere to stay. And my parents just went, yeah, stay at ours. And I remember him saying that he'd never been out of Mauritius and then he gets a place in uh, St. Andrews University and turns out lost. And my parents like welcomed him in and he carried on being a great friend uh, for years. I'd actually just got back in touch with him again. And he died soon afterwards, which was really like heartbreaking because he was such a nice guy and, and always remembered like my parents and, and living in our house, which was nice. And we had, you know, people from India staying in the house. I remember my mum, uh, I have a photo of uh, these Indian ladies dressed my mum up in a sari and uh, with dab of uh, red on her forehead and stuff. And, and in the picture, my mum just looks delighted. Just almost like a multicultural sort of environment. Outside of that, we also had a couple of people staying at the house that were quite difficult. I think on two occasions, we had people that were pretty hardcore alcoholics. And my parents were also like, well, life has served them a bum deal. We have to kind of like look after them. They're people. <laughs> they have to be somewhere and we have to try and look after them. On one hand, it's not, it wasn't like a sort of normal childhood, but it kind of introduced me to a kind of acceptance of, of things, no matter how bad or traumatic things are in someone's life, that you just help people. And my parents were amazing at that. There was one story which I'd quite like to say because it, it kind of it meant it really meant a lot to me. And it was when I was at secondary school at Madras. And this uh, there, there was like a school exchange with a German school. And everybody was like, yeah, we're going to Germany. We're going to kill, you know, with the school exchange. It's going to be amazing. And I, I think I was kind of like 14 but I remember being absolutely terrified of going home and saying to my mum, there's a school exchange, uh, I want to go. And I just really didn't want to say to her that it's in Germany. <laughs> I eventually had to say it because I really wanted to go. And I went to my mum and said, can I go on the school exchange to Kiel, which is like near Hamburg? And my mum just looked at me and said, yeah, okay. And I said, oh, because I was so scared to tell you because, you know, I was thinking about your childhood and your life during the war. And she just looked at me and said, look, uh, because I can never forgive the Germans, I don't want you to have to carry that kind of hatred. I don't want that continuing and I don't want you to have it. So you're going. 
And I thought that was quite amazing because I was really scared to tell her. I think to people who don't know about these kind of things, it kind of looks like, well, my mum despised the Germans or something. But it wasn't about that. It was about the war and about the trauma of the war. But for her to say, I don't want my kids to carry what it made me. I remember her saying that so clearly. You know, that's 40 years ago she told me that. And I still remember her looking at me and saying, no, you're going because you are not going to carry my story about people. And I think it shows what kind of people they were. Yeah, but it's something that's not easy to come by these days still. I think that sort of generosity and openness to others, to all kinds of people and their stories, I think that's really extraordinary. So we've spoken about your father and your mother and the the people that you met. I wonder... Can you say more about children that surrounded you? Because you you told us about all the grown-ups in your yeah. early life. But I wonder what it was like for you to come from this Polish home, go to school in Scotland, and how other kids welcomed you or not in the school environment. I will say that uh, nothing to do with other kids or anything, but I always hated school. I was really, really bad at school. And in fact, on my first day, I ran away. <laughs> but it's funny because I started school in about 1968. Then you couldn't look at St. Andrews as some kind of like multicultural community or anything. It was just the local kids. And actually at school, there was me and there was another Polish kid. There was a guy from Ghana who had been adopted by a Scottish family. And there was the three of us who could be considered like aliens. And that was it. I don't even remember it coming up as like a subject with people, with kids. Because I think kids are pretty welcoming when you're little kids. St Andrews was just a small Scottish town. And if you were there, you were there. Occasionally, we'd have kids joining the school that were from other countries, but they'd be like the kids of people, like academics, who were on a short-term contract or came to the university for a year or six months. And these kids were kind of like transient, so they would disappear. So they'd be there for kind of half a year or one school year, and then they're gone. I absolutely never remember any kind of like hostility. or uh, I, I would think it would probably be quite rare now. I still have a friend in Scotland who's a school teacher, and she was telling me the problems they had with that new wave of the Poles who came over in the 90s and so on, and uh, the problems some of the kids had at school. I never remember like, anything like that. But then again, you know, I, I was born in St Andrews. I, and also, I know that with my father, when the war ended, the Polish troops that stayed in St Andrews specifically, because that's what I know about needed to find places to stay and they just moved in with Scottish families until they could sort you know sort themselves out we didn't have any family outside of us I had no grandparents uncles nobody in Scotland that was family and and I remember that the lady who was the daughter of the family my dad stayed with at the end of the war she kind of became our, what can I call her, like adopted grandmother, basically. And we'd go and visit her twice a week and, uh, you know, have Wilson's lemonade and cheese and onion crisps and stuff. And she just became like our granny. So she was like our only family in St. Andrews was uh, this old lady who my dad got to know because he was given accommodation with them when the war ended. 
she remained a stable in our lives until she died when she was about 90 or something. She was always like our grandmother. But it was nice to have someone like that. Absolutely. You don't always need to be blood relatives to be family, right? Um, oh, yeah, that's, I think that's true as well, because I know that, for example, with my father's background, that he was from a really poor family. We did visit Poland a few times, like with my dad. You know, we had uncles in Poland. I'm actually not sure how many of them were actually like blood relatives, because I remember my dad saying that when they were living on this landowner's estate before the war, it was it was just common that if somebody's parents died or something, you, the other families would look after the kids. And I think some of these people, were, even though we refer to them as uncles, I think they were people that were just taken in by my dad's parents. But I don't know. It's another thing that I, things that I wish I'd asked. <laughs> I just accepted these things, you know? You kind of don't really get into these things when you're a kid. And then it becomes too late, you know, your parents die. And even in Poland, I... I don't think I have any relatives left in Poland. I think they were all of a certain age and they're all gone now. Outside of my brothers, I, I still don't really have family as such. But I also think from the perspective of my parents, I think that thing that they were always open to people is that they were also kind of trying to compensate for having lost people. The old Polish guys that were in St Andrews, they were almost like our family, really. They were always at our house or, you know, they'd go... On Friday nights, they'd meet up and go for drinks at the Reading Hotel on North Street that was run by another Polish guy. So they'd go and sit in the cellar bar there and argue and talk. So I, I think that community was also like, maybe family is a better word than community. They'd kind of built this family. It was really interesting. Yeah, the very notion of community, you know, is, I guess it's difficult to apply it to that particular group of people. As you said, they were from different backgrounds, uh, very different social standing in some cases and attitudes to, to life. And then they come together and you could say they're linked by a traumatic event or a traumatic journey. At the same time, there is there is happiness, there's conviviality around these all these places that you've described. And thank you for telling that because there aren't that many traces of those stories in St Andrews. We've got the, you know, all kinds of memorials to the war effort and, and soldiers, but we don't see underneath that there is a, a story of lives that were built together in St Andrews. I think quite often it's like the ordinary life that is kind of disregarded it's kind of eaten up by the the big stories but I actually think they're the most important stories because I think it's what makes us human makes us different and uh, and then that's sometimes disregarded because it's considered not relevant to the, the grand picture of war and history it kind of doesn't figure in history that just the normality of people and how they need each other I think that's kind of emphasised by things like that idea of people being migrants. I mean, you just have to look at, you know, over the last months, because I live in Warsaw, like how Polish people have risen to helping refugees from Ukraine. It's just been incredible to watch. And, and there was no kind of specific government policy on that. It was actually people, just ordinary people who kind of just, took people in, raised money. You know, I'd, I raised a lot of money from uh, people I know in Scotland and uh, I'd go down to the railway station at the beginning of the war and see what was going on. And the people that were there to help or offering accommodation to people, it was just ordinary people. And it became like a grassroots kind of thing. 
right, we have to help them. I, I know lots of people who just opened their, their homes. My friend who's visiting at the moment, he basically left his brand new job, took two weeks off and uh, went to help transport children from yeah. orphanages from Ukraine to Poland, just because he couldn't sit at his desk and focus on his job when the war broke out. So you've told us amazing stories about your family, but I still, I've yet to hear about how you ended up in Warsaw, because you said you visited with your family. First of all, can you tell us mm. about this whole idea of return? Did anyone in your family ever contemplate that possibility of returning to Poland? Obviously, Lwów was no longer Poland after the war. Was that ever an option? And how did you end up living in Warsaw? The first time I came to Poland with my parents, I think I was about three. Like you said, after the war, was no longer Polish territory. But once well, my parents got British passports, they could come to Poland. And actually at that time when uh, relatives, because they were Polish people in Lviv or in what is now Ukraine, they were actually uh, pushed into Poland after the war. Or even uh, some of them directly at the end of the war were then transferred to what was Polish territory because they were Polish citizens. So we could come to Poland. My parents could never go back to where they were from. So they never went back to Lwów. My dad never went back to where he was from in Busk. But they could visit Poland. I think my parents always held this idea that you cannot just give up on the people that are family. And I think it was very important to them for us to get to know these people. So we used to come uh, fairly regularly. And actually, I remember like when I was really little, absolute sort of strain of the journey of going from St. Andrews to Poland because early on we never used to fly I don't, I don't know why but it was this massive journey that was uh, almost three days of travel to get here including ferries to Hook of Holland and then getting on the train where half the train was Russian wagons that you were not allowed into so the train was in two halves a half that would go to Poland and then half that would carry on to uh, rush to Moscow and things like, I remember being really scared when we'd get to the East German border where for the first time I'd start seeing uh, border guards that were carrying guns and things. And uh, it was like something out of a 1960s Michael Caine spy movie or something. But as a kid, it was, you know, I'd kind of like terrified of these people or, you know, people getting on with the customs men with machine guns and uh, coming on with dogs to sniff whether there's anything that shouldn't be on the train and whatever. And, uh, but my parents were insistent that we have to go and, and I have to get to know these people before they pass on. And so actually I had a lot of interesting times here. I was actually in Poland uh, during martial law. I spent uh, a lot of time here then. So it was also incredibly interesting. And like I say, my parents were absolutely insistent that we got to know more or less where they were from, which ultimately was not really true because they were not from this Poland. They were from further east, but it's the best they could do. And they really wanted to kind of wanted us to get to know these people and know the country. When my parents died, I then moved to Holland I won like a really major British art prize and it was quite a lot of money. 
and I just took the money and went off to Holland and lived there for a year. And then I went back to Scotland and kind of couldn't really sort of find myself again. And also because it's almost like there wasn't a family thing to hold me there. Like I didn't have the thing where my parents were around. Both of my brothers had gone abroad. My younger brother had already moved to Poland. He set up a translation company here. My other brother worked uh, in Vienna. And I came to visit my brother and just never went back. And that was 21 years ago. You just mentioned the art prize that you won, but we didn't say that you're trained as an artist and that's your profession. So can you tell us where it started, where you were educated and also more about your art making? Yeah, I went to art school in Aberdeen. I studied at Gray School of Art and I studied printmaking. Then I started making more sculptural work and work based on old photographs. Originally, I was making kind of like box construction works. All my work begins with like an old photo and then develops from the old photo into recreating a story from the photo. So kind of recreating objects and so on. And the whole idea actually did come originally from uh, thinking about my parents' life before the war, because I didn't really know about what their lives were really like pre-war. So as an artist, I started fabricating their life in my work. So I kind of invented a life that wasn't their life, but was pretending to be. So it's kind of like a big lie, sort of uh, not only from the creative aspect, but I found it quite sort of therapeutic for myself to kind of invent this life. It became quite a kind of interesting thing. When I had a few shows in Scotland, I had a, uh, quite a big show at Aberdeen Art Gallery called Between Memory and Exile. And um, it was the kind of assumption that people had that all the work were actually about my family and that the photographs and the items in the work were actually family things. And none of them were. Like, the photographs were from other people. The photographs came from, like, flea markets and junk shops and... uh, and the objects which were recreated that, that were, in general, there were things that were in the photographs, I completely made from scratch from brand new materials and then made to look old. And I started feeling quite guilty because for me, it was quite a kind of helpful to try and make me come to towns with my family. But then I started feeling really bad about the fact that people seemed to believe that this was the real story, which made it a bit awkward a bit like being some kind of like massive liar (laughs) and uh you know when I won that award I moved to Holland and my work became quite different it actually became about basically about landscape and about light because I was quite impressed with the fact that in Holland it was so flat and the light was so amazing that you you could look for miles and it was just flat so my work became very minimal and very about strong light and also, I, I thought that was, as an artist, I thought that was really helpful because I was kind of getting totally bogged down in this fabricated life of my parents, and I had to get away from that. The Dutch thing moved my work in a different direction, which was good. Then I moved here, and I carry on making work. I have an apartment full of my work. I'm, I'm not quite sure why, but it's quite difficult for Polish galleries to get interested in your work. And I think it's becoming increasingly difficult because I think there's a push to kind of push Polish artists, basically, uh, here. 
And, and the last time I exhibited was three years ago or four years ago and in Scotland because uh, I was actually invited as a guest artist at the Scottish Royal Academy show four years ago. So I had worked there, but I carry on working and uh, doing my art stuff all the time. Uh, my brothers were very business minded and kind of normal. But I was never really, I was always making and painting and, you know, making things out of cardboard and balsa wood. And uh, and my parents really encouraged that. They were just kind of like, be who you are, do what you want to do. My brothers were off into academia and so on, and I was making things. <laughs> and they never said, you know, oh, you have to you know, become a lawyer or become a brain surgeon or anything. It was just, well, carry on doing that. You've only got one life, do that. Actually, I remember one of the very first things I ever made was a house for a spider in a matchbox. And inside the matchbox, it was like a kind of hacienda with a courtyard. And there was a hole where the spider could go in and then he could come out and run around the courtyard and stuff. And sometimes I think about that and I actually think the work I'm doing now, 50 years later, it's not that different from the house for the spider I made when I was 50. I think that was important that my parents also encouraged a kind of way of thinking that it maybe didn't click with them or didn't didn't have some kind of resonance with them. But it was like, oh, he's spending his time doing that. Let him get on with it, which also I think was good. And I think that was also about their openness to kind of just seeing people as everyone's different. Yeah, absolutely. Matches all those stories that you, you told. I think um, so. Those, yeah, exactly. Um, about other people and how they approach other people as family, mm. you could say, without asking too many questions. So it's interesting what you said, though, about Polish galleries pushing Polish artists and the fact that you've exhibited your art in Scotland. But I'm thinking, aren't you a Polish artist as well as a Scottish one? Yeah, I think that's kind of problematic thing because it's I actually ended up getting put off even going to ask private galleries here because I was twice told, don't you think Polish artists are having a hard enough time? Why should we be supporting a foreign artist? Now, I have Polish citizenship now as well. And I'm thinking, well, I am Polish, but I'm not going to get into some argument. In a wider way, it kind of creates a dilemma in me. It gets to the point where you start thinking, I don't actually know who I am. Am I Polish? Am I British? It's not something I worry about because I think uh, that thing about nationality or about being nationalistic or being uh, completely obsessed with being Polish or British or something kind of doesn't really figure in my head. And maybe I've never really known. It's, if I go back to the UK, I now, maybe because I've been here so long, I don't particularly feel like I'm British. But when I'm here, I don't particularly feel like I'm Polish. But then it's one of these things that I don't think I should spend too long mulling over. It just becomes like a problem that isn't really there. <clears throat> yeah, and I think there's there's richness to it. You know, you've got these very different perspectives. You've got the memories of growing up with a Polish family in Scotland while you live in Poland. And, and you've met so many Polish people along the way, as well as British and, and, and as you said, other nationalities. So it is, I would see that as something to draw on. I think it's beneficial in a way because you're almost puts you in a position of being like a chameleon or something. You can just sort of uh, weave in and out of the two worlds, yeah. so, which is actually quite good. It gives you it gives you more options. <laughs>
I understand, you know, I'm Polish myself and I, I, I haven't lived in Poland in a while. And, and yet I'm there, seems all the time, visiting friends and family and, and yeah. so on. You, you're never really fixed in one, one spot. So I understand that. Well, thank you very much, Matt, for sharing with us. Uh, this was really quite astonishing. Uh, you know, the, the way you, you tell stories, first of all, is really remarkable and engaging. But also the, the story itself, the story of your family and the kind of people that they were, something to, I think it's important to share their story and to celebrate them. As you said, we, we shouldn't just look at this sort of official military history of, of Poles in Scotland and in Fife. Mm. There are fascinating stories that don't get told that often. You know, people I know here, every family has wartime stories. And, and actually, you, you do realise that there is no right or wrong. There is no definitive winners and losers everyone's got stories the kind of personal stories are the ones that actually reveal what that kind of situation is really like for a while i was working with an elderly guy who was livid about the warsaw uprising he was just like no warsaw uprising worst thing and then you know i was thinking you you rarely meet a pole who's going to say that because I said, I, I asked him, how come you're so against it and against the, the Remembrance Day things they have for the uprising? And, uh, and, and he said, well, because he lost his entire family through the repercussions of the Germans after the uprising started. He lost everybody. He was the only one that was left alive. And he said it was like systematic slaughter of ordinary people just to try and demolish the uprising. And he said that it was just, to him, it was a failure from the start. And as an individual, he lost everyone. Now, you're not going to read that in history books because they're just going to tell you about the heroic adventures of, you know, what happened. And okay, I accept that completely. But then you hear from an individual how his whole family in the space of a couple of hours was uh, wiped off the face of the planet it puts things in a different sort of light, I think. And I think then you can never put these things in some kind of 100% focused, this is right, this is wrong, this is... We're all individuals and we've all got our situations to deal with. I think that should be pushed more about people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what you said about, yeah, the Warsaw Uprising and how it's sort of celebrated and, and mediatised and what, what stories are allowed to be told... Versus the stories that people live. Someone, yeah, that someone in the street will tell you, or someone you yeah. meet in the pub will tell you different things. Yeah, so so that's why that's why we've met, and that's why um, it was uh, so important for us to, to 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 get to talk to you and hear your perspective and your your memories. So you've you've got all these stories, Matt, and I wonder if you could. Tell us what you've done to to keep them, to prevent forgetting. And you, you said there were so many questions about your family's history before the war, but your own memories, I think, are, are worth sharing. I have actually, over the last two years, written a book to try and sort of remember these people. I think rather than just having it in my own head, I decided that I need to write down everything that I remember. But it's written in quite a specific way where I've split the book into chapters about specific people. And I initially started it as just a way of, sort of trying to 
knocked this down. And I, d I didn't actually think it would end up being as big a project as I imagined. I, I kind of thought it would be a few short stories or write down what I remember from being a kid. And it's very specifically about when I was a kid and when these people had such a big influence on me. And it ended up developing into an over 300-page book, which I spent about a year and a half, two years writing. For me, it's kind of good to know that I put it down on paper. And it also made me think about um, some of these Polish guys that my dad knew also wrote about things they remembered. And actually quite a few of them who are not writers ended up doing writing their own manuscript about what they remember and what's important to them. And I remember them coming around with stacks of paper and asking my dad to read what they'd written and stuff. So I'm kind of like, in a way, carrying on a kind of tradition like what they did, which is not being a writer, but using writing to kind of just keep them alive, I suppose. Well, I hope one day we might get to read those stories. Um... Yeah, I hope one day you can walk into Waterstones and it will be on the buy one, get one free shelf. <laughs> That would be <laughs> uh, maybe not ideal, but I can imagine... It'd be fine for me. <laughs> I, I can imagine your book fascinating a lot of people because you're a great storyteller and the stories them themselves are um, quite special. So thank oh, you thank for you. sharing. Thank you. Hello, this is Alice Koenig, the director of the Visualising War and Peace Project. Just jumping in to say a huge thank you to Matt and Martina for such a rich, interesting and warm conversation you delved into so many different aspects of forced migration and gave us really fascinating glimpses into what Polish refugees themselves experienced, but also what their children and families experienced and what it was like to grow up in the Polish exile community here in St Andrews. So thank you very much for deepening our understanding of this historic forced migration whose ripples are still felt in Poland, in Ukraine, in Scotland and many other places today. Thank you also to you, our listeners, for joining us again. Do keep tuning in to our podcast. We have a series of episodes coming out exploring different aspects of how we visualise forced migration as part of our wider work on war and its aftermath. If you have any questions about our work, please do get in touch. You can follow us on social media, just search for Visualising War, or contact us directly by emailing us at viswar at standrews.ac.uk. And you can visit our forced migration website too by Googling Visualising Forced Migration and St Andrews. If you'd like to support our project, please share and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use so you don't miss an episode. And please do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find the show. Our theme music was composed by Jonathan Young. The show was mixed by Zofia Gertin. Thank you very much for listening. Bye.